Is the Green New Deal being tabled by Congressperson Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez undemocratic? How truly grassroots are the recent campaigns for a Green New Deal and climate justice? Are the people's climate strikes pressuring the ruling class to comply with their demands, or are they a cover for a very climate-unfriendly agenda? Are Greta Thunberg's public outbursts and statements depicting the climate emergency being shaped and informed by a strategic playbook? Are climate activists unwittingly bringing on a transformation of the economy that will undermine people and the planet? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on a week of global youth-led mobilizations calling for urgent action on climate, we scrutinize the modern climate movements and examine uncomfortable questions about who really benefits from the initiatives they enable. We first speak to author, journalist, and political consultant Naomi Wolf about her reservations about the Green New Deal. In our second half hour, we hear from investigative journalist and environmental activist Corey Morningstar about her series of essays on Greta Thunberg and the corporate capture of the modern climate movement. On this week's program, Green New Deal and the Climate Movement, Trojan Horses for the Billionaire Class, bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 27, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on Okipada Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. If a military assault on Iran is not going to help the ordinary Yemeni, neither will the tightening of economic sanctions against the people of Iran. Already the sanctions reimposed upon that country since the U.S. withdrew from the six-nation nuclear deal have led to a great deal of pain and suffering within the populace. The sick, including children, have been deprived of much-needed medicines which are presently imported from abroad. Military action and economic sanctions, it is obvious, only exacerbate dire situations. Whenever it is initiated by a mighty power in collusion with its allies and agents, it fails to achieve its objectives. That comes from the article, Iran, Neither Military Action Nor Economic Sanctions, by Dr. Chandra Muzaffar, posted September 22nd. Was there an explicit order emanating from U.S. and or Saudi officials not to fully activate the air defense system with a view to effectively countering the incoming missiles and UAVs on that day? This matter has to be investigated. Eighteen drones and seven missiles were launched. Major strategic targets, which had been carefully selected, were reached without impediment. In other words, while it may be premature at this stage, we should not exclude the possibility that this was a false flag with major repercussions on energy and financial markets. That comes from the article, The Attack on Saudi Arabia's Oil Facility, The Patriot Air Defense System Failed. Why? By Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted September 22nd. 
truth may never have been popular, but if one studies the history of propaganda techniques as they have developed in tandem with technological changes, it becomes apparent that today's incredibly sophisticated digital technology and the growth of screen culture that has resulted in what Guy Debord has called the society of the spectacle has made the manipulation of truth increasingly easier and far trickier. News in today's world appears as a pointillistic canvas of thousands of disconnected dots, impossible to connect unless one has the desire, time, determination, and ability to connect the points through research, which most people do not have. As a result, writes Jacques Ellul in his classic study, Propaganda, he finds himself in a kind of kaleidoscope in which thousands of unconnected images follow each other rapidly. And his attention is continually diverted to new matters, new centers of interest, and is dissipated on a thousand things which disappear from one day to the next. This technology is a boon to government propagandists that make sure to be on the cutting edge of new technology and the means to control the flow of its content, often finding that the medium is the message, one that is especially confounding since seemingly liberating, e.g. cell phones and their easy and instantaneous ability to access information and breaking news. Then there are writers, artists, and communicators of all types, whether consciously or not, who contribute to the obfuscating of essential truths, even while informing the public of important matters. That comes from the article, Revealing While Concealing the Invisible Government's Conspiracies, by Edward Curtin. Posted September 21st. The reduction of the Saudi crude production, cut in half, though amounting only to 5% of world production, would under normal circumstances hardly affect significantly the world petrol price, unless it becomes the subject of speculation, which it obviously will, a justified high-risk speculation. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan and others are experts in the matter, doing the bidding for the Fed, IMF, ECB, BIS, the Western instruments behind the dollar system. Let it milk as much as it can before biting the dust, letting it shuffle as much as it can from the bottom to the top, as is usual for a manufactured economic crisis. Mind you, they all are and have been manufactured for at least the last 100 years. While the uncertainty about Western global interest rates prevails, a major attack on a couple of Saudi oil fields is an ideal reason for letting oil prices skyrocket. It could make for an ideal false flag, a win-win for Washington, sustaining the manufactured economic crisis with an attack on major oil fields, maybe the first of others to come, and a good new reason to blame Iran. Another good reason to go to war with Iran. That comes from the article, Houthi attack on Saudi oil fields, a false flag. The financial reaction was immediate. By Peter Koenig, posted September 21st, originally published on New Eastern Outlook. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
In the United States, newly elected Democratic Congressperson Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Democratic Senator Edward Markey released the text of House Resolution 109, more commonly referred to as the Green New Deal, a 10-year plan to address the interwoven crises of climate catastrophe, economic inequality, and racism on a scale that matches the public mobilization during World War II. While the plan has gotten mostly praise outside of right-wing circles, an unlikely progressive source has begun to ring alarm bells about what is actually in the agreement. That source is Naomi Wolf. The journalist, political consultant, and best-selling book author is the head of The Daily Clout, an online media platform which reviews and interprets legislation passing before Congress for the benefit of the lay public. Naomi Wolf says she supports the idea of a Green New Deal in principle, but she explained to the Global Research NewsHour recently that the plan, as written, had some serious democratic flaws. In the Ocasio-Cortez uh, H-Res that I analyzed, um, it does create a committee, which is not unheard of, but it gives that committee vast power um, to determine outcomes without going through the normal process of, of debate and transparency um, and, and lobbying, you know, by citizens for the, the details of a bill. Um, so that's number one. It's, it's not completely unheard of to create a committee with gigantic powers like those, but people really should be aware that this is not a, it's, it's not a bill. Like, that's why it's called the Green New Deal instead of the, like, Green Bill, right? It's, it's not a bill. <laughs> It's not a piece of legislation. It, it creates a mechanism to kind of transfer a gigantic chunk of the economy into the disposition of these, uh, I think, 12 to 15 individuals um, who, get, who get kind of hand-picked um, and, and who then have the power to, uh, to assign vast value of taxpayer money to, and that brings up the second problem, Really opaque entities. Um, so, in so I've talked about the, the kind of um, structural problem I see with the, the Green New Deal that it's not a piece of legislation. You can't read the bill. Like we, we weren't reading the bill. We were reading a description of of who gets the power. Right. That's what it is. And people really need to understand the difference. Um, and then the second thing is the resolution does uh, kind of describe who gets the power and how this committee will make decisions and, and basically who the committee's loyalties go to. And the problems in both versions of the bill I read, one was more egregious than the other, but one of the problems is the nature of the flow of revenue, right? And so people are identified in both bills to receive um, kind of priority in flowing the money to them and to their communities. But to me, it's a very unconstitutional way to allocate the money. The money doesn't go according to what communities are most at risk of climate change, and it doesn't go to what programs are, you know, best suited to addressing climate change. It, it literally goes to people identified as frontline communities, and then the definition of who is a frontline community really turns out to be, and, and I tend to vote Democratic, right? But it, it really turns out to be demo, the Democratic base. <laughs> um, so it's like, you know, urban people, it's, um, you know, communities of color, it's, uh, it, it's people who tend to vote Democratic. Um, you know, it also includes, you know, rural communities. It, 
uh, people with disabilities. Um, but it really it, it it highlights union uh, you know members. But when you when you aggregate you know who these people are, I you know again my personal politics tends to the left. I tend to believe that you know people of color need legislation to support historic you know remedying historic injustices. I tend to believe you know the cities have special problems. I'm I'm personally you know not opposed to legislation that supports historically marginalized people, but as an American and someone who believes in the Constitution, the way the money is flowed to one group of Americans rather than all Americans by by policy, you know, both by identity or by kind of voting block rather than by who who should receive it because of climate change, that raises big constitutional issues for me. And I'm very, very surprised if if that allocation will survive a, a challenge by the courts because it's really, you know, we have equal protections under law, and you're not allowed to use American legislation or taxpayer money to benefit certain people over other people by their demographic. That's just unconstitutional. And then the last thing, if you can bear with me for my final chunk of what's wrong with it, um, is that the, the instruments by which this vast amount of money flows are totally opaque. Um, again, worse in the first version of the bill, you know, than in the second, but still very opaque. Um, they flow through, quote-unquote, financial instruments uh, and and have no public oversight. Um, and, and they give this committee the power to create financial instruments to, to be a conduit for this vast amount of taxpayer money. So we've, we've seen that before. You know, that's what happened in the um, 2008 financial, you know, crash or right before it. You know, people were given the power to kind of just flow up taxpayer money unchecked through these totally opaque financial instruments. And it's a recipe for, for theft, really. Um, and, it, and it has the option of no public oversight. Um, and the other thing that really raised my eyebrows was that at least one of these versions flowed the money among these financial instruments, which were not identified, right, but they were private financial instruments. They weren't, like, through, you know, state um, EPA offices, right? They weren't the normal channels of, of government administering taxpayer money. They were, like, diverting taxpayer money to private um, entities. The, the thing that really uh, struck me, too, was one of these entities was the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve is not, a lot of people don't know this, it's not a public entity. It's, it's, its books are not open. You, it's not audited. People can't go online and see what the money in the Federal Reserve went to. It's a, it's a private thing that was invented and put together, put together by a group of private, um, you know, robber barons, basically, in the early part of the 20th century. So these are not, in these three ways, um, the fact that it's not a, an actual bill, um, you know, not it's not like the Clean Air Act. It's not a piece of legislation that people can read and change and debate about and see, right? Um, but it's like a dictation of an oligarchy, basically. The fact that the people identified as being uh, privileged in the reception of the money are not all Americans or the Americans most at risk from climate change, but a different group of people that happen to tend to vote Democratic, and 
finally, the fact that the financial instruments that deliver this vast sums of money divert it overwhelmingly to the private sector with no oversight, these are big flaws in my view. So, yeah, that so this does sound like a significant departure from what uh, Roosevelt did back in the 1930s, uh, in other words. Um, Speaking about the, the the private sector entities, I I just did a show on the the five G rollout and wireless, and uh, I know that you, there are a lot of health risks associated with that. But uh, also, there's a there was an apparent capture of regulatory industries by the big wireless providers. Exactly, how do you see this benign sounding Green New Deal legislation in reality affecting that agenda? Well, that's a great. Question. I mean, one of the. I'm really glad, Michael, that you're focusing on the 5G rollout because it's. I'm in touch with Dia Scarato, um, who is part of Environmental Health Trust, which has been a very uh, committed act- activist and advocacy group against 5G and other under um, identified health risks. And the, the, the science is in. Um, 5G it, it causes health problems. It causes changes in, you know, kind of precancerous changes. And, and 200 doctors around the world signed a uh, an appeal to not um, establish 5G. Uh, and and many cities around the country are trying to limit 5G to away from schools, away from residential areas. Um, certain countries have banned it altogether. So. It's, it's a very serious thing, and the, the beauty of daily clout, also the curse, unless we have you know, partners like you who can help us get the word out, is that we read the bills that pass to create the infrastructure long before you know people become aware, the news media becomes aware that this is a threat. So in 2017, 2018, gigantic bills were passed with no oversight you know, from the media. Those are usually weeks in which... President Trump or even the other side is engaged in some gigantic distraction to, you know, hold the media's attention while giant bipartisan bills go through stealing something from the American people or threatening them with some bad outcome. And this is a perfect example. So, as you note, a big chunk of bandwidth um, was handed over to the telecom uh, by, by one of these bills. And it was just, you know, they didn't pay for it. And we keep reading bills, too. We reported on them on Daily Cloud that hand over, it's shocking, um, to the telecoms the right to put 5G antenna on public buildings like schools and post offices and, you know, VA hospitals and other government buildings that your taxes pay for. Uh, and, and they don't, they even give like AT&T and big telecoms the right to not even be charged market rates for the rental, Right. So it's, it's threatening public health and even giving these telecoms the low market, like, like derisory fees uh, to, that the, the government is able to charge them for putting these antennae that are beaming um, kind of cell-altering, you know, waves at, at kids and elderly and vulnerable people and everybody, animals, the environment. Um, it, it, it's truly shocking, and it, it's, a, it's the biggest, in my view, the biggest public health uh, kind of threat or story that has not been reported, so and yet we have, the, and yet we have this uh, Green New Deal is talking about support for these uh, smart cities, right? Thank, thank you. So I'm glad you brought it back to that. So indeed, the Green New Deal in both iterations, as I recall, called for a smart grid, and that sounds really great, but it's 
seriously a gigantic giveaway to the telecoms at the expense of public health. Um, because what a smart grid can mean is um, that the telecoms will get some of that, you know, Green New Deal money with no oversight to continue to distribute 5G. It's already rolled out in 30 cities in America. Um, but the other thing a smart grid is set to do, and people should know about this, is another bill in 2017 created the infrastructure for driverless cars. And so the, the big players are planning to um, make a giant investment in driverless cars, but that means that there's going to be even more who knows what health consequences elect, electromagnetic, you know, an electromagnetic grid for, for driverless cars, we, you know, ramping up further possible health consequences that, that will not be disclosed, that will not be publicly studied. As C.S. Scarato said, there's no one home in, in Washington tasked with overseeing 5G and tasked with regulating that these uh, limits of electromagnetic radiation are acceptable for human beings and, and animals. Um, there's, there's no one minding the store in her view. So that's something else. To, to be aware of, that there are these um, huge plans uh, to continue to beam, um, I don't know what to call it, a, an, an electromagnetic superstructure that can host 5G and also driverless cars. The health consequences are negative. We already know, and there's so much more of that planned, and the money can flow opaquely from your hard-earned tax dollars through the Green New Deal people to these giant industries. That is a concern. I don't have evidence yet that um, the driverless cars infrastructure is a recipient of Green New Deal money, but the structure of the wording that um, funds a smart grid is going to benefit driverless cars and telecoms. Now, there's been a whole campaign around the Green New Deal. I mean, this is more than just Ocasio-Cortez and, and Ed Markey. There's a uh, you know, you've had you know all these uh, you know a, a growing movement. It's it's seen as a, a grassroots. Uh, it's getting not just national but international attention. Uh, last December, there was a big protest at the congressional office of uh, Democrat House Leader uh, Nancy Pelosi to support a Green New Deal initiative. Right. What are your thoughts about the success of what's being called this grassroots initiative, enabled by you know however uh, exciting uh, and, and you know, energetic this? Uh, progressive young congresswoman from New York might be? I mean, I'm really glad you're asking these questions, Michael. They're, like, first of all, I can't stress enough, we need a global grassroots movement, you know, and, and like so many events these days, what, what happens is that um, special interests or stakeholders fund and cultivate leaders for a movement that moves in the direction of outcomes they want and harnesses energy of real people who really do want to make positive change. So I really don't want to dismiss the global movement. It's, it's harnessing, you know, like my mom and I went to the Green New Deal protest in Corvallis, you know, a couple, a couple of days last week, or rather the Earth, the Earth Day um, protest. Like real people really rightly are turning out and saying, please protect our beautiful planet. Um, what worries me is that behind some of the theater, there really is 
some creaking machinery that's quite visible if you know how to look. And I, as a former political consultant, you know, am noticing some things that indicate that there are special interests kind of mobilizing. Um, so one of the things I noticed is that the Sunrise Movement, which does a lot of great stuff, um, they present themselves, and they're very much at the forefront of claiming to be a grassroots movement and pushing for the Green New Deal, right, as it, as it is written. They're, they're not a grassroots movement. Um, they're not even a nonprofit. Uh, and, you know, they're a, they're a for-profit entity. I believe they're a 501c4, though I need to check. I did some reporting on it, um, meaning that they're listed as kind of a lobbying group. You know, they can legally lobby for legislative outcomes. Uh, and they're staffed by former Obama bigwigs on the Democratic side. Um, so uh, when I've asked them, and if you go on their website, you can't see their board, you can't see their board of advisors, you can't, like a nonprofit, you can see their quarterly financial statements, you, you can't see that, you can't see who's funding them. They're quite opaque. So they may be awesome, I may love the legislation that they come up with, but they're a, they're a lobbying group. You know, they're a plain old K Street, old-fashioned lobbying group, and they're masquerading as a grassroots organization. So to me, that's not cool. You know, like, if you're going to lobby, lobby, and, and let people, you know, know that you're, you know, APAC or whatever, and, and that people are, are, are paying you to get a certain legislative outcome. Don't pretend to be a grassroots organization through deceptive branding. Um, the other thing that I noticed is there's no such thing as a protest in a congressperson's office. But, like, that is not a thing. Here's what I mean. You know, there's that the Democrats have created this narrative of here's upstart, you know, radical uh, congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I just want to say she, you know, so much of what she does is awesome. She's a true, you know, critic of the establishment. She, she's a fantastic leader. She's obviously being groomed, you know, to be the next Obama. There's no question. But, but the DNC can appropriate people like that very skillfully, and they're clearly doing it in this case. They've created what is unfolding as a narrative of, oh, this radical upstart with this Green New Deal, and Nancy Pelosi doesn't want it. Well, that's exactly the theater that the DNC wants you to believe in, because then you'll go like, yeah, we want her Green New Deal, because she's a breath of fresh air, she's a radical. What I really want to stress is no one can get into the building, and I've been there not too long ago, you know, and been through the, the security checks myself. You can't get in there and stage a protest. It's just physically impossible. If anyone's staging a protest in Nancy Pelosi's office, Nancy Pelosi's security team has cleared that in advance. Um, it, it's just literally not a thing that a bunch of people can get into that building and go to an office and, and have a protest and invite the media to observe it. That, that it takes so much coordination and clearing of every single individual there before they can even get into the hallway, you know, where there are doors behind which Nancy Pelosi's office functions. And that's for good reason. You know, she's a target of security threats, and, you know, all the members of Congress are, and you can't just saunter in there and have a protest. So um, so I think there's some theater involved, you know, as, as there always is. I'm often called a conspiracy theorist because I've been a political consultant, and I've seen the theater being engineered, <laughs> you know, and I've seen reporters report it as if it's just spontaneous news, just a spontaneous uprising or a spontaneous protest, you know, and these are things that took a lot of money and effort and energy to coordinate. So, um, 
be that as it may, uh, that to me seems like another example of of a well thought out narrative in which you have this kind of fake pincher movement of, you know, the radical upstart and her, you know, we got it passed over Nancy Pelosi's objections. No, no, no. I think the DNC wants it passed and knows that if Nancy Pelosi says this is my Green New Deal, people like me who are radical about the environment won't, you know, won't support it because it's not radical enough. Well, I wish we had more time, but I think I have to let you go now, Naomi. So thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts on this uh, very pressing uh, topic. Thank you so much. And can I invite everybody, if they like the mission of a a news site that actually reads the bills and and shares the actual legislation, please do consider coming to our site and becoming um, members of our community as well. And and you know we'll tell everyone about uh, your wonderful um, your wonderful website and, and research as well. Thank you for global research, Mike. Thank Michael. you. We've been speaking to Naomi Wolf, founder and CEO of the Daily Clout. Her company's web URL is dailyclout.io. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager and activist who has become an international celebrity and Nobel Peace Prize nominee, has inspired youth and adults around the world to rally for climate justice. At last Monday's UN Climate Action Summit in New York City, she made major international headlines with a speech that scolded world leaders for their inattention to the climate crisis. The Global Research News Hour recently reconnected with a past guest who claims that Ms. Thunberg and the youth climate movement she has inspired are wittingly or not, advancing an agenda of uber-capitalist plunder. Corey Morningstar is an investigative journalist, uh, a longtime environmental activist, a mother, a gardener, and a member of the Wrong Kind of Green Collective, which dissects and documents the corrosive effect of philanthropic foundation funding on environmental non-governmental organizations. Earlier this year, she published a series of essays entitled The Manufacturing of Greta Thunberg for Consent, as we discussed in a program that aired last Jan- February, the series presents an unconventional and dissenting view of Greta Thunberg and the youth climate activism that swelled up around her, indicating that their campaign, far from being a threat to the powerful, is actually advancing a preconceived plan. And should their true goals be fully realized, they'll advance the wealth, privilege, and hegemony of those elites at the expense of the youth, the public, and the planet. Corey is still in the midst of publishing the second volume of her series, which appears at wrongkindofgreen.org. She joins us now from her home in London, Ontario. It's a pleasure to have you back, Corey. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. Uh, just first of all, could you talk about the reaction your series has gotten so far? Um, it's pretty much exploded in the past while. And, um, you know, it was really, really tough for a little bit. I had um, quite a small circle of support in those people were actually very courageous and brave. We went up against sort of a wall. I mean, it's really strange, this huge, almost like um, like this, you know, actually a spectacle was created, and people became very um, protective of, of Greta and very, um, I don't really know what you call it. It just became like this huge spectacle and almost like an obsession with people. And so 
when the research came out, people were really, really resistant to read it, um, thinking that it was an attack on the child. When in fact, that's not, as you know, that's not at all what it is. And it's about what, what and who is behind Greta. So I think, um, you know, with persistence, and again, especially with all the support that I've had, people did start to read it. And then sort of a wave began. Um, people started to understand what was happening and really, um, you know, get really, really interested in the research and began, um, you know, sort of, you know, sort of like, wow, I had no idea. And people just became really interested, and it's, I think it's really great. I mean, finally, I think, you know, there's a little change happening. I I've mean, seen I some of that. I've seen some of the the criticism you've gotten, and it seems to be people who, like you say, they don't realize that you're actually, you know, challenging the, the assumptions that this is the 16-year-old kid who came out of nowhere and, uh, you know, is, you know, just somehow caught the the interest of the world through some convergence of luck and whatnot. But as you maintain, I mean, there, there's been uh, involvement from uh, these uh, large non-governmental organizations from the very beginning. That yeah, like there's no, there's no, um, there's no dispute about that. I mean, well, there is a dispute from, I guess, from people that don't want to believe it, but it's absolutely a PR campaign. I mean, it's 100% PR campaign. From day one, as soon as the very first um, tweet went out on social media on Twitter of the lonely girl Greta Thunberg by um, Rince Hogg, the co-founder and CEO of We Don't Have Time, the very third person that day to respond to that was Callum Greve, who's the co-founder of We Mean Business. Now, We Mean Business um, works with the World Economic Forum, and you know, even right, they represent, they gather together all the largest corporations on the planet. And this week, they're in, they're actually overseeing the whole United Nations um, Climate Action Summit with the World Economic Forum and I believe the World Bank and. Um, just recently in June or July, the World Economic Forum, who's behind the Fourth Industrial Revolution, actually signed a partnership. They went into partnership with the UN. And so basically they've been handed, um, they've been given full reign to oversee the sustainable development goals. And so you've got, now you've got the billionaires, you've got, I mean, this is really like a complete um, corporate capture of what's left, of everything that's left, you know, the, it's complete corporate capture of everything, and that includes the youth. And so, as far as that goes, I mean, it's nothing strange that it's a PR campaign. This is the way everything works, from, you know, selling products to selling more. You say it's a PR campaign, and certainly for the people participating, uh, they, they, as far as they're concerned, this is about demanding that the elites wake up and deal with this uh, climate emergency. But maybe you could just remind us what the actual agenda is, yeah, like if people, not to like save the, the planet. Problem. People, the, the demand, the number one demand of the climate strike is to align with the Paris Agreement. Well, Clive um, Spash, an ecolog um, sorry, ecological economist from, where is he? Um, God, I can't. I can't even remember where he is. Anyway, he's um, amazing, and he's written a paper called This Changes Nothing. Um, 
about the Paris Agreement and how, you know, just like how I write my paper, how that just will continue. We're going to plunder the planet in order to save the climate. It's nothing to do with the climate. It's all about saving a, 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 the capitalist system that's in decline, late stage capitalism. I mean, even last week, right before the, the big global strike, you had the Financial Times come out with a new section saying, I mean, it's huge, right? This is the biggest um, advertising campaign that they've had in, since 2008. So that tells you how desperate they are to, to save this crumbling system. So we're demanding to be saved, essentially, from all the um, billionaires and corporations that have brought us to the very precipice of you know, ecological devastation, um, what have you. It does seem strange that I mean it's supposed to be a strikes, and yet you're seeing you know these you know billionaires and you know wealthy big politicians, people like Al Gore, just wanting to be uh, you know lining up next to Greta, getting their photo op, and like I, I've never heard of a strike where the bosses are, are wanting to you know, cozy up to the people on the picket line. Um, well, exactly. I mean, this is, this is the thing. I mean, why? I mean, it's. I mean, it's almost so blatantly obvious. I feel almost <laughs> a bit strange trying to explain it because why do the rich and powerful, if they're threatened, why are they all, you know, um, fighting amongst themselves to get to the front and center of it and be part of it, you know? And it's um, another aspect of it. We just become so um, commercialize ourselves, like even our children now are, you know, basically bonding with corporate power. They figured out parents are busy, they're at work, they're on their phones, they're on their computers. Um, you know, and in, in the meantime, the um, corporations and the PR firms, they figured out how to tap in to our children through their cell phones. Mm. And so if you look at a place, for instance, like, um, what's it called? Um, Global Citizen. I had like 1,000 names in my head. Yes, there's so many uh, names. I, I, I kind of got lost in them, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Global yeah, Citizen. Yeah, so Global Citizen right now is partnered with the United Nations Climate Action Summit this week. And then behind that is We Mean Business, um, behind the youth mobilization programs that are happening there, We Mean Business of Oz, um, World Economic Forum, WWF, who's behind the financialization of nature. I mean, they all are. Um, so you've got all of these, we basically have, you know, like literally the corporations, corporate power have encircled our, the youth like vultures, you know. It's, today I put out a piece and um, it's about, I just called it youth washing, right? <laughs> and we're basically using youth now as a weapon against themselves, against their futures. And so, you know, I wanted to say I think it's, like, the thing is, it doesn't matter whether Greta knows that she's part of the PR campaign or not. I mean, it doesn't really matter. There's more kids on this planet than just Greta, you know? And what we need to do now is organize and figure out, like, stop bickering about whether or not she's, you know, part of this, you know, whether she's, you know what I mean? There's just so much about her. It's yeah. Like, we have to look behind her. Like, look at all the stuff that's happening. How are we going to stop this? Like, when we talk about the Industrial Revolution, um, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, when we talk it, what, I'm not sure um, if we talked about it on your last show. 
basically. Yeah, we what we mentioned was in the last show was the uh, this uh, uh, opportunity to open up uh, ninety to a hundred trillion dollars uh, in public. Yeah, and that's assets. already started to happen. I mean, all through the last week and um, during the climate strikes, you're, you're hearing, like, huge commitments, like, huge amounts of money, um, you know, and, like, even last, when was it, in April, no, February, there was a huge um, spectacle created around Thunberg speaking with um, the European Commission president, I believe, at the time, and... They announced this huge amount of money that 25% of the European budget would be spent on climate. But what people don't know, that that was just for show. I mean, that that was already announced last year at the World um, at the One Planet Summit mm. put on by France. So there's a lot of, of stuff being created to get people excited and get people demanding for the very solutions that they have in store for us that will further, um, you know, destroy our shared um, commons. Could you touch on that point that uh, this movement, this climate movement and and Greta, they're they're saying unite behind the science. They're not proposing solutions, but they're saying, you know, let the scientists uh, listen to the scientists and, you know, respond to the emergency. So there doesn't seem, they don't seem to be articulating a specific plan. Exactly. And that is part of the plan, right? It's not about um, people say, oh, well, she says this, she says this. And it's like, okay, well... She also says, let's save the banks. I mean, it's more about what's not said, right? And so even, but I guess set back there for a sec, because it's about what is said, too. So, for instance, that um, phrase, you know, that's a branding phrase, listen to the science, listen to the science. Well, what we have right now, you have um, science that's in servitude capital. So you have scientists actually... Um, telling the governors they just passed this big um, offset program in California. They had scientists, um, you know, telling them, yeah, do the the offsets. We've got scientists on board with the financialization of nature, which is the privatization and commodification of nature, global in scale. So that's assigning a monetary price to every living thing. And then after that, there's already protocols and things being developed to actually assign monetary values to um, culture and social elements in life. So we're talking about um, commodification. Well, we see that's already happened of activism. And then we're talking about scientists who are in servitude to capital instead of in servitude to actual science. And so... You know, and it's really dangerous when you say, listen to the science. And by the way, where where are all the scientists from the global south? I mean, we have all, all white scientists from the West. And, and where's, where's the rest of the world in this? There's another aspect in one of the, the I think it was one of the last chapters that, that I saw, you you mentioned as well that indigenous wisdom is, is does not seem to be respected in this. And I mean, you just look at where these areas. I think you show a map where there are uh, wilderness areas proximate to where indigenous people are living, and, and there are some of the the, the most uh, the, the most protected 
areas. So, I mean, they, they've got something that they can share, but this, this process and the, the, the Green New Deal or the fourth industrial revolution doesn't, it, it seems to be jury rigged to, to, to exclude those views. Well, it just doesn't exclude them. It will further displace um, the indigenous peoples. I mean, that's a genocide that continues to this day, ongoing. And even with the amount of um, precious minerals, resources, everything else that they want to do, basically that are, are required to create this fourth industrial revolution, which at scale, um, Bill Gates describes that as the scale of building um, a New York City every single month for 40 years. So if you can try to imagine how, how many resources we're going to plunder from an already plundered Earth, I mean, this is just crazy to think that this is anything um, to do with saving the planet or saving the climate or otherwise, because all that um, industrialization just creates more emissions. And is there no, is there, okay, they were talking about 90 to $100 trillion supposedly invested in uh, transition and, and doing all these wonderful things. Is it conceivable that there won't be associated with that uh, an increase in greenhouse gases? Is it possible that you can decouple? Uh, no, absolutely, that's not possible. Absolutely not. And that's, again, like, um, and I think I actually addressed that in one of the volumes and. I talk about decoupling in there, and I have quotes from um, Kevin Anderson on decoupling. And, um, I mean, it's just so packed. It's hard you know, <laughs> to get a lot into half an hour, but it's just so packed with information. And I just would love people to read it to see what we're up against. And I really would encourage people to embrace the youth. Instead of mocking youth or mocking Greta, which I think is, you know, cruel. Um, I mean, we only have adults to blame for this. You know, we can't blame a child who should be able to trust adults. So I think um, now's the time to really organize and, and learn about this stuff so we can deconstruct it, so we can detect it, so we can create real movements, so we can figure out, you know, if we don't want smart cities, how are we going to stop them? You know, but this idea of begging to, um, you know, to the very people that... <laughs> have destroyed everything and enslave us and, you know, will stop at nothing, you know, to save this economic system, you know, that, that I mean, that's just, that's just not going to happen. I mean, they're never going to give up their power. They're never going to stop, um, you know, going after that economic growth. It's just never, that's not going to happen on its own course. There's some skeptical listeners, I'm sure, who are saying, well, you know, wait a second. I am campaigning for this Green New Deal because we're talking about not, uh, you know, justice for, for uh, the racialized people and indigenous people. We're talking about increasing good paying jobs and we're talking about addressing the climate crisis. And you're, you're saying one after another, that's not what's going to happen. That's not what's going to happen. And even the jobs thing is not true. Like if you look at the new economy report and new, um, the new climate economy, and that's right at the helm of all this with World Resources Institute. Like, that's one of the key players. Right in their own papers, they talk about 
how the autom um, automation is going to take so many jobs, and that's like the real, you know, that's the real thing that's going to happen if this whole fourth revolution goes forward. Artificial intelligence is part of the package. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so everything you see, like even the Green New Deal, and in my article I have another key player from the United Nations selling the, the Green Deal back in 2009. And in that one, they're far more upfront about, the, about it being exactly for to save um, the economy. This was right after 2008. Um, and it didn't fly at that time, but now it's being presented as the deal to save the environment. Um, even AOC, whatever her name is, Alexandra, Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio yeah. Like even her, what's the name of, the, of her guy that runs her show? Chakat Country or something. Yeah, yeah, he was just Printed up in the Washington Post. Washington Post, yeah. you know, saying, oh, it was, I'm surprised he thought it was anything to do with, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, I'm surprised he thought it was anything to do with the climate, it's, you know, about the economy. Right, and so like what you're getting is just, and this is what I call it. You know, you're getting storytelling. You're getting up. You're getting, you know, stuff to make to sell it. It's a sell. You know, it's the it's the big sell. There's one important aspect of this PR campaign I'd like to explore with you, and it's the whole idea of leading the public specifically into emergency mode. Our house is on fire. And in part four of the uh, volume one of your series, you mention an individual named uh, uh, Solomon. Oh, right. Yeah. And she, um, uh, wrote the paper. She works, she works with um, Michael Mann, the scientist. You know, Bill McKibben, Naomi Klein, like she's um, Al Gore, I believe. She works with the Democrats in the United States. So anyway, she wrote this paper in 2016. It's basically, if you look at it, she's revised it now. There's an updated one. But if you look at the old one, the one that I went off of, I think the, the new one she updated this year, it's on basically a blueprint for exactly what you're saying right now, even the phrases, your house is on fire, are right in the document. Yes. So, um, she talks about um, different types of imagery to use. And, you know, I've found that imagery to the, you know, exactly used um, on covers of magazines to accompany um, articles written by Bill McKibben. Yeah. I mean, it's all in there, even the, you know, the tone, the way to speak, you know, how Greta always looks like really sad and stern. That's all in there. Um, I mean, it's incredible. And then you've got her, um, Solomon. She's involved with Extinction Rebellion right from the beginning. And then within, like, a, I don't know, two or three weeks, there's, like, 200 of them all over the world. Mm -hmm. right? So these things aren't, aren't um, spontaneous. I mean, they're being organized by people with lots and lots of resources. You mentioned Extinction Rebellion. I mean, that whole idea of being in emergency mode. Um, and, and that's become a, a major motivator behind the PR campaign. Yeah, the Extinction... Yeah, I mean, definitely. And yet, um, you know, since all these... Since all the cities have started passing these declarations, what do you see has happened? Nothing. I mean, my city passed one, and then a week ago we had a great big air show. 
you know, with military planes and everything. I mean, someone came from the city in the neighborhood again a few days ago, cut down more trees. I mean, nothing's happened. There's been no, um, you know, what kind of emergency is there where nothing even happens? The emergency is to unlock the, the treasuries, you know, to um, re- it's called rebooting the system. They call it uh, the Financial Times, rebooting capitalism. And that's all it is. And I think anyone that expects any more from this is going to be sorely disappointed because it's just um, it's going to make everything worse. And even what we were talking about earlier with the indigenous peoples, I mean, uh, even as the piece I just released today, as I was writing it, I did all the research on that one this month. I don't even think there's a single person that, that's not white in, in any anywhere, including Greta, you know, I was thinking, wow, like, every single person is white. And then when you come, when I go to to grab images from all the stuff they're selling, there are, you know, so many images of indigenous peoples, um, you know, um, just all these emotive, um, you know, to the Western, sort of like this exotic other imagery to sell their disgusting that actually, um, like I said, will further displace um, <laughs> indigenous peoples and tribal peoples that are already, you know, under duress. And I don't know, it's just crazy. Like, the, especially the groups that are involved. I'm not sure if you've seen that video with Monbio, George Monbio from The Guardian and Greta Thunberg in it. Mm-hmm. Have no, I haven't seen it yet. Okay, well, in the first 24 hours, it had over a billion views, and they used the term, this is the one I released today, they used the term natural climate solutions. And then if you go back and you look at where that term came from, it's, um, it came right from the Nature Conservancy, which is the main person, um, the main group, sorry, behind the financialization of nature and Conservation International. It just, you know, is all these quote-unquote conservation groups, they're just, it's land acquisition, it's land theft, you know, um, and they're all, it's just the same old thing. I mean, it's just, it just makes me so mad that I can barely even talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's all, all the same language. This is so much about language and framing. And all the same language, um, the forgotten solution, natural climate solutions, it sounds holistic, it sounds amazing, right? I mean, who doesn't want trees? I love trees. And so it gets everybody on board, like there's this whole um, part five, it's all about the social engineering of together and everything, um, to, you know, to change everything we need, everyone. It's all about basically engineering the populist conditioning people to basically believe it, um, it basically makes invisible um, class analysis, like it puts it out of the equation. So instead of identifying with workers, you know, brothers and sisters that are being really hurt by this system, you know, and making imperialism and capitalism like the very foundation of our environmental movement, we're somehow being um, engineered into identifying with their oppressor. So I, I know I'm all over the place a little bit right there. Um, but 
to what I was talking about, that language. So you've got the forgotten solutions and you've got the natural solutions. And then when you go back, see where it came from, from these big conservation NGOs that, you know, even WWF has been um, being investigated for murder, rape, torture, right, displacement. Like this isn't, you know, stuffed panda bears, you know, yeah. in, in the real world. Um, you've got the same language being used now by Greta, by Monbio, by, um, you know, Klein, NGOs, you know, the so-called left. And this identical language now is being used by Shell, Dow Chemical, um, McDonald's, <laughs> We Mean <laughs> Business, World Economic Forum. So under the auspices of, of these holistic terms, we're going to bring in something so ugly to destroy what, what we want, you know, what most people want to save. And if anybody wants to know what the um, industrial, fourth industrial revolution looks like, they should Google, um, um, what's it called, uh, underwater, it's a mining robot for the ocean. And they're being made right now, and that's because the, the quantity of industrialization and infrastructure that they want to build to further colonize the global south, we don't have it. It doesn't even exist on the planet. They're going to have to go into the ocean to get it. Hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, this is Some sort of insanity. <laughs> Putting profits ahead of people and, uh, <clears throat> in greenwashing. The... Uh, the series is The Manufacturing of Greta Thunberg for Consent. Uh, it's uh, the first volume uh, came out months ago, and there, as Corey mentioned, she's in the middle of a second volume. So I, uh, I, I'm not saying you necessarily have to agree, agree with everything she's saying, but this is definitely an important, uh, albeit depressing, uh, series and, and points to, to grapple with, and, and I hope listeners will, will, will check it out before they come to judgment. Um, Corey, thanks so much for uh, making the time for this interview and uh, for this uh, brilliant series you put together. I look forward to more of the remaining installments. Thank you so much, Michael. We've been speaking with uh, Corey Morningstar, uh, investigative journalist and uh, longtime environmental activist from London, Ontario, and uh, she is a member of the Wrong Kind of Green Collective. You can find both volumes of her series, The Manufacturing of Greta Thunberg, for consent, at the website wrongkindofgreen.org You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. <laughs>